we've come on a on a special Sunday, uh, Sundays we prepare to gather around the, the Lord's table and remember the, the sacrifice that he made that made possible our very relationship with him. So as we prepare to do that, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 13 and look at a passage that is prelude to the institution of the Lord's Supper. In John chapter 13, as you're opening your Bibles there, just by way of background, Jesus has gathered his disciples together to observe the, the Passover meal. It will be the last Passover meal that he shares with them. Shortly, Judas will betray him to the religious leaders. They will try him through the night. They'll find him guilty of blasphemy. They'll turn him over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, because the religious leaders don't have the capacity to execute an individual. So they'll turn him over to... Pontius Pilate, the governor, charging him with sedition, with treason, and he will be beaten and he will be crucified. But, but now, in chapter 13, verse 1, these are events that are, that are prelude to that. It says there, before the Passover festival, before the, the meal, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Well, on three, at least three occasions, Jesus had shared with his disciples that he must suffer at the hands of the religious leaders, that he would be killed, and that he would rise again on the third day. And though the disciples seemed unable to grasp the weight of this, Jesus was fully aware of what the coming hours held, what they would bring. He knew the time had arrived for him to depart from this world, to go to his Father in heaven. He knew the ordeal that was about to take place, what he would endure before the departure. The disciples may not have been fully informed and aware of what was about to take place, but Jesus knew exactly what was going to take place. Continuing in verse 1, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And his own here clearly is a reference to his disciples, those who had chosen to follow him. Loving them to the end is a a Greek translation that's uh, one that's difficult to get precisely right. Some translations say he he loved them completely or he loved them to the uttermost or the utmost or he showed them the full extent of his love. I'm not sure that any of those get it completely right. Jesus loved them with the fullness of of the love of God. They were loved by Jesus as fully and completely as love could possibly love, is what the statement is saying. In verse 2, it says, now by the time of supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus. And it's probably important to note here that Judas does not seem to have made his final decision. Satan has placed the idea firmly in the heart of Judas. Judas is under extreme pressure from Satan to act on his own behalf. There's considerable profit in it for him if he does after all. But the final decision doesn't seem to be made until verse 29 when Judas opens his heart completely to Satan and Satan enters in and Judas becomes guided by the spirit of Satan or the spirit of the world or the spirit of his own greed, all of which seek to destroy Jesus and his influence, regardless of whom they enter into. In this particular case, it's Judas. But for now, though under temptation, Judas remains with these other 12 disciples gathered. In verse 3, 
as it continues, Jesus knew that the Father had given him everything into his hands, that he had come from God, that he was going back to God. And so he got up from supper, and he laid aside his robe, and he took a towel, and he tied it around himself, and next he poured a water into into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that he had around him. Jesus had loved his disciples fully and completely. He had stepped from heaven to earth as an act of love. He took on human flesh as an act of love. He was born the child of Mary, raised the son of a carpenter, Joseph, and lived the life of an itinerant preacher with no home of his own, no place to lay his head, all as an act of love. But his expression of love was not yet complete. It was fulfilled in an ignoble death on a cross, executed as a common criminal. But on this night, Jesus wanted to give his disciples a living example of what was expected of them. So where the chore of washing feet fell to the lowest in rank in a household, we've talked of this in the past, the the lowest servant, the youngest child perhaps that had the ability to perform the chore, again, the one of lowest rank in the home, typically, here, Jesus, the teacher, the Lord, got up from the table, removed his robe, took a towel, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, remember, they're in, a, they're in a, an upper room, a rented room, as it were, where they've gathered for this Passover celebration. And so they're not in someone's home where the assignment of washing feet naturally falls to an individual that's going to do it. When you would go into someone's home because of the dusty trails and because of the sandals that were worn, feet would be dirty. And someone typically would wash your feet. That would be an extension of welcome into a home. But because they're in this room and it's not someone's house, it's no one's responsibility Maybe it should have fallen to the last disciple drafted. I don't know. They seem to have been drafted in twos and threes. and So maybe there was no last disciple drafted that it fell to. And they all come in and they sit down at the table. And no one's taking up the responsibility of washing the feet. They all have dirty feet. They've traveled to this place. So Jesus gets up and sets his robe aside, pours the water into the basin, wraps the towel around himself, and He takes up the task quietly of washing the disciples' feet. They're reclining around this low table with their feet sticking out from the table so they're easily accessible. I'm guessing as Jesus took up this task, they all sat in absolutely stunned silence, probably embarrassed that Jesus was washing their feet now, that that they had not considered, I should have grabbed the basin. I should have grabbed the towel. I should have the water. I'm the one that should be washing the master's feet. Even if it includes washing the feet of all of these other guys, I don't particularly want to wash their feet, but embarrassed that Jesus is washing their feet and they're not washing his feet. When Jesus comes to Peter, he voices his embarrassment, his protest, Jesus, this is not right. Will you wash my feet? I ought to be washing your feet. Will you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will. 
What Jesus does now in the washing of their feet is a preview of what's coming, his crucifixion, as he serves them this evening, a servant cleansing their feet. The next day, his service will be much fuller still, a servant on the cross cleansing their sin, a sacrifice paying their redemption price. He says to them, you don't understand now, but afterward, it will be clear to you. Just, just remember what took place tonight. Just remember what I, I did for you. And we saw this last week in Galatians 5.13 as we talked about the kingdom citizen loving freely. And in Galatians 5.13, the apostle Paul said, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom to just do as you please. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. This is the freedom that God gives us is that we can love each other freely and that we can serve God faithfully by serving each other humbly as a demonstration of that love. In verse 12, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his robe, he reclined again and he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and this is well said, for I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done for you. I assure you, a slave is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. And it needs to be noted here that Jesus is serving 12 disciples whose faith has failed at many points. They, they always had to see to believe. On the lake in a vicious storm while Jesus slept, they awoke him with the words, Don't you care if we drown? To which he responded, first calming the wind and the waves, and then asking, Do you still have no faith in me. They lack faith in the miraculous feedings and the banishing of the demonic that they couldn't do. Judas will soon betray him. Thomas will doubt until he sees the scars on the body of Christ. Peter will deny, but still Jesus serves them. He knows their past. He knows those points in which they failed. He knows where they are right now. He knows the future and the ways that they're going to fail moving forward. But still, he serves them as an act of love, as a demonstration of his love for them. And sometimes the hardest one to serve in loving service is the one closest to us, the ones we know the best, the one who's offended us the most, especially family, sometimes especially in church family, Jesus knew the doubt of Thomas. He knew the denial of Peter. He knew the imminent betrayal of Judas. But still, he washes their feet. He humbly serves them. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and I am. And if I truly am that to you, then follow the example that I've set and humbly serve each other. Stoop to the lowest service. Let not pride keep you from a willingness to serve others. If you do, if your pride gets in the way, then you lay claim to a greatness greater than mine even, the one you claim as your Lord and Master. 
In verse 17, Jesus says, if, if you know these things, if you know these things, if these things are clear to you, if you see what it is that I'm doing, and there's a clarity that's dawning on you as I call you to love one another and to serve one another as an expression of that love, if, if you know these things and understand these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus knew there was one among them who would betray him, Judas. And so in verse 27, Jesus sends him out. He says, what you're doing, do quickly. And the sending was cryptic enough that the other disciples there didn't seem to understand Judas as the betrayer. Once again, it shouldn't be lost on us that Jesus has washed Judas's feet along with all the rest of his disciples. But verse 21 tells us that Jesus was troubled by the presence of the betrayer. He was fully aware that Judas was not going to back away. And so he made known the presence of the betrayer. When John inquired who it was, Jesus singled the betrayer out by an act of honor. He personally dipped bread in the sauce on the table and he handed it to Judas. And it seems only Jesus and Judas understood. I have this sense that there were there were bowls of the sauce. There were 12 of them around a squared table with an open end, and the bread was dipped in the sauce, and they were common bowls, and that Jesus had dipped bread in the sauce and handed it to several of the disciples that were in close reach. Perhaps he had made it a point to dip the bread in the sauce and to hand it to each one of the 12 disciples around the table. I don't know, but he he said it's the one that, that I dip the bread in the sauce and give the bread to. And, and in that moment, he gave it to Judas. And, and maybe that was what threw them into such confusion. Who's he talking about? Surely it's not me. It's not, my, not me, Lord, is it? I, I would never betray you. But Jesus and Judas understood. Judas took the bread from Jesus' hand. He ate it. And John identifies this as the moment when Satan entered Judas fully. Verse 30 says, after receiving the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night. He went from the presence of the one who is eternal light into the darkness of the night. And herein lies the choice with which we are confronted regularly when temptation crashes headlong into God's will. How will we respond? Will we repress our own selfish desires wrapped up in the temptation or will we humble ourselves and remain in the the light of Christ will we abandon faith and walk into the darkness of night to pursue our own self-interest or will we remain in the light of Christ Jesus had words to share with the faithful he had a message that is the heart of the gospel. He intended to share it with those who would eventually understand it and live. He knew it was pointless to share with one who was determined to abandon the faith. So after washing Judas's feet, after, after serving him, honoring him with the service of the bread, giving him a last chance to align himself with Jesus, he sent Judas on his way. But now, he turns his attention to his remaining disciples. In verse 31, it says, When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. As Judas had made his choice, so too Jesus is resolved to do the will of the Father. And the Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son and will glorify the Son in him and will do it at once. The time is at hand. The clock is rapidly ticking down to both the crucifixion and the resurrections when the disciple will see clearly the Son glorified in the Father. Speaking of his crucifixion in verse 33, he said, Children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will look for me, just as I told the Jews, where I am, you cannot come. Jesus tells them beforehand things that they won't understand completely until afterwards, but then he speaks clearly and unmistakably. In verse 34, he says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And Jesus challenges them with that which is at the heart of the gospel, the love of Jesus. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. It is this love for each other that will mark you as mine. And how had Jesus loved them? As the Apostle Paul said, he had served them in love. He humbled himself and he served them. He put their interest ahead of his comfort. He washed their feet. He did much more. He cleansed their sin. He paid their price. He died their death. This is the new understanding of love, you see. This is where we have a a problem, and and we've, we've discussed this before. We define love as an emotion. Webster says of love that it is a strong affection for another rising out of kinship or personal ties, as in the maternal love for a child. It's attraction based on sexual desire, affection and tenderness felt by lovers, affection based on admiration or benevolence or economic interest. When I typed love definition into my web browser, the first thing that came up was noun, an intense feeling of deep affection. Verb, to feel a deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone else. You see, it's it's a part of our culture, perhaps a part of all cultures, that we associate good feelings with love. Love must, by a common cultural definition, feel good. It must. Think of the things that you say that you love. A certain genre of music or movie, certain foods, certain sports. I love when the family's all together. I I love Christmas time. I, I love hunting or fishing. I love sitting on the beach and reading. I love being in the water and diving deep. I love the mountains. I love the snow. I love the ski. And on and on and on it goes with regard to things that people say they love. And what these things have in common is that they make a person feel good. Things you you say you love make you you happy. If, If they don't make you happy, if they didn't make you feel good, you wouldn't love them. And this works great with things. I love salmon. Many people don't. 
they think it tastes too fishy. And that's, that's okay. I can like it. You don't have to. We can like different things. I remember when CJ was younger, he used to like to hunt. He liked being outdoors. He liked being in the woods. You know, some people like a tree stand in the dark just before sunrise, in the woods, in the cold, or in the heat, swatting mosquitoes. I, I don't get it. I like the beach in the day, in the warmth, in the sand. And, and that's okay. If you like the tree stand and, and I like the beach, we can like different things. Different things can make us happy, and, and that's okay. We don't have to like the same things. But if this is your definition of love, how does that affect your interaction with people? You love them when they make you feel good, when they make you happy. If love is an emotion, if it is a strong affection based on attraction or sexual desire, then what happens when the attraction is gone? What happens when the fires of passion and desire flame no more? Do we cease to love an individual? This is what happens in a great many marriage relationships. If you don't make me happy, then the love is gone, and so am I. And if this is your definition of love, that love is something that's supposed to make me happy, that makes perfect sense. But Jesus wanted to give us a new definition of love. He wanted to give us, his people, a new definition of love, and it's one that we need to agree upon. He did so through the demonstration of unrequired service on his behalf. There was no requirement for him to humble himself and wash his disciples' feet. He came willingly and hung on a cross and cleansed their souls, died in their place, paved the way to life itself for them and us as well. In the actions of Jesus, we see clearly that love is not an emotion. Love is not a feeling. Certainly, feelings will surround the demonstration of love. Feelings will surround. Anytime you demonstrate love in any form, I guarantee you, feelings and emotions will surround the demonstration of love. Jesus experienced feelings in the hours immediately before the greatest act, the greatest demonstration of love that mankind has ever known. He retired to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for strength for that which lay ahead. Resolved to complete the task for which he came, he still needed strength. Matthew and Mark both record the words that express his feelings. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The contemporary English version says, I am so sad that I feel like I'm dying. Jesus had no affection, no fondness for the cross. The act of love that purchased our freedom was not one that made Jesus happy. If the love of God the Father and the love of Jesus the Son was based on good feelings, there was no happiness in the sin of mankind. Jesus found nothing pleasing in the cross. God took no pleasure in watching his son mocked and ridiculed and tortured and executed. If good feelings were the basis of God's love, he would have given up on us when Adam and Eve first disobeyed. Instead, 
He loved us in our brokenness and in our faithlessness. And he loved us as fully as love could possibly love. Love's not an emotion. And love requires sacrificial service. When Jesus went to the cross as an act of love, he gave his body, his shed blood, but more importantly, he, he bore our sin. He loved us to the fullest extent, as John said, by spending himself completely. God spent his most valuable resource. God spent his most precious resource, his only begotten son. God sacrificed that which was most precious to him for our need, for us. And Jesus said, As I have loved you, you love one another. Love, love each other, even when it doesn't feel good, even when the other person's not making you happy, when it's inconvenient, when it's uncomfortable. Spend yourself and your resources. Give that which you value most, your time, your money, your most precious possessions, So the resources God has allowed you to the needs of those around you, understanding that this is what love looks like. It's not emotion. It is an action that requires service and sacrifice. This is who God's called us to be. This is who the church is. Individuals created new in the image of Jesus children of the king, sons of the father, members together of the body of Christ, kingdom citizens focused and dedicated to the teachings of Jesus, looking out for each other, concerned for each other, concerned as well for a lost world, understanding that life resides in God's agenda, not our own, Life resides in loving those around us with the uncommon love defined by Jesus on his knees, washing feet, on the cross, cleansing sin. The kingdom citizen demonstrates the love of God in humble, faithful service. We have so many needs for service, places of service. They're all around us. They're all around you on a daily basis. They're all around us here at the church, from service to the, to the homeless. You know, we have a group of people that, that feed on Thursday nights, up, upwards of 100 to 200 people at times over the course of the years. and They have a large crew that helps them, but there's probably half a dozen or so maybe that come from our church, that crew of people that goes out to feed, that large crew come from many different churches. And so it, it launches here from First Baptist Church of Lutz, but it is a ministry to feed the homeless. And it's not, it's not just of this church, it's of many churches as many people from different churches come together. Don't labor under the misconception that First Baptist Church of Lutz has this great ministry of feeding the homeless with all of these people going out to feed the homeless on Thursday night because... We don't. There's probably a half a dozen or so, I'm guessing, of our folks that, that are part of that. We have 
a, a ministry called Ride On that guys work to repair cars for people that don't have the money to get their cars repaired. They gather the third Saturday of every month, and but it's man, it's four to six guys that go down there. It's not it's not a rotation of fifteen guys and. Every third month, five more guys go down there and do it. There's a lot of guys, I'm guessing, in the church that know how to turn wrenches. I just don't happen to be one of them. But some of you other guys, a lot more mechanical than I, I mean, those are, those are opportunities to serve. But the ride-on ministry has been going on for years, and it's been the same four to six guys that have been a part of it. We talk about prison ministry in this church. And I know Gary Smiley goes out to Pinellas County Jail or Pasco County Jail up here on 41 every Sunday night by himself. I know Jim Hall goes out every Monday morning by himself. I go out to Zephyr Hills Correctional Institute every Monday tomorrow starting in the morning and in the evening by myself. And and uh, Kendra and, and Bert have been a part of that when health has allowed. Their health issues have, been a, have, have, have prevented them lately. Others amongst us have been a part in the past, but it's boiled down now to where Tomorrow night, it'll probably just be me out there. And so we, we have prison ministry going on, but I don't want you to labor under the idea that we have just a bunch of people involved in all of these ministries. We have places of service that we would love for you to step forward and say, I'll serve there. We're working on a children's building that will be completed over the course of the next six to eight weeks. And heaven forbid that we should have this beautiful new children's wing and not have individuals to man these classes back here and take care of our infants and our children and our students, wherever they land. I mean, we need people to step forward and say, I will do that. Plug me in there. I want to serve, and I want to serve humbly. I'll change diapers. How many of you men have changed a diaper lately? There's four of us. I got mine lately. Debbie gets most of them, but I got mine. I mean, you can do that. That's some, some of you guys are going, I could never do that. I could, uh, I, man, I, I'd probably throw up if I had to change a dirty diaper. <laughs> you won't. It's a cop out. You know, you could do this. You could do this. And we need men back here with our infants, with our children. We need men with our students. We need men showing our young men what it looks like to be a man. The idea that all of the spiritual teaching that would take place in the church from the time they're infants up until you get to the student ministry would take place by women is absolutely ridiculous. There are young men back there. Boys, it. They, they need men back there to see what it means to be a man. Heaven forbid that we should open this children's wing back up and have classes we can't use because we don't have people that would humble themselves and step forward and say, you know what, I'll work with children. I, man, I'd jump at the opportunity to, to work with, with children. We have, we have places of service. We have children who find themselves in the care of the state that they need homes for whatever reason they found themselves in the care of state it doesn't matter they, they need homes the state is sorting out issues and trying to put families back together but in the interim 
the children need homes. Some of you have bedrooms. And all you need to do is get certified by the state. And you can take part in that process and you can help put a family back together. You can be a part of that process. We have some among us that have become disabled in such a way that they can no longer come to service here with us. And, and we have some that go out and minister to them. But those that do go out and do that ministry could use help in doing that ministry. There, there are just so many different ways. And man, I'm just spitballing stuff up against the wall. We sat down and brainstormed about all the different areas of service that there are available to you in the church, not to mention the areas of service that present themselves to you on a daily basis as you come and go through the course of your life. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, says Jesus called all of his disciples together and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Kingdom citizens give generously, and they forgive fully, and they love freely, and they serve faithfully as a demonstration of that love. And so the question with which you must wrestle this morning as we prepare to gather around the Lord's table is where is it precisely that God's calling you to serve? Let me ask all of you to stand. If you have never before put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you don't know where God wants you to serve. There's no way you can divine. There's no way you can discern what it is that God's calling you to. So. So we're going to take a moment right now before we come to the table. There's a place for you at the table. There was a place for Judas at the table. He chose to get up and leave the table. There's a place for you at the table if you'll come and take your place. But you come and take that place not under your conditions, but by God's conditions, by determining to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you would do that this morning, Man, we would love to pray with you about that, to counsel with you about that. We would love to dine with you at the Lord's table in light of that decision. But that's one for you to make. For the rest of you, you've determined to be followers of Jesus Christ. Come to the table clean. Examine your heart. Confess your sins. Agree with God. Repent. Be in agreement with God. And think. Where is it he's calling me to serve? Been right in front of me, and I've been missing it. I've been missing it. I've been resistant to it. Confess, repent, align yourself with God as we prepare to come to the table.
setting we've just talked about it It was a Passover meal in the midst of that Passover meal Jesus took elements that were normal elements of the Passover meal and he gave new meaning to them he said in the future when you partake of these elements these are the the significant things that I, I want you to remember he said of the bread bread that was used in the midst of the meal he said in the future when you eat of this he said I want you to remember that this is my body broken for you and in challenging us to that remembrance the challenge is not exclusively to remember that that Jesus went willingly to the cross that Jesus willingly gave of his body that Jesus was willingly beaten so brutally that Jesus was willingly nailed to the wood beams of the of the cross that Jesus willingly hung there for hours it's it's not just remember his remembering his willingness to give his body in the way that he gave it but it's it's a willingness to remember what he said the evening before he gave his body do this in remembrance of me do this in remembrance of my washing of your feet and my challenging you as I, as I have done to you, do also to one another. Do this remembering the sacrifice, the sacrificial service in which I engaged out of my great love for you. Do this in remembrance of me and let that remembrance of me and my sacrificial service spur you on, move you forward, push you ahead 
to live as I live, to be true children of God, true kingdom citizens, true disciples. So as we partake of the bread, we do it in remembrance of Jesus, but not just a somber remembering of the giving of his body, but the remembering as well of what he's called us to as his children. You bow with me in prayer. Father, we're grateful today for the example that you set. God, grateful for your willingness to so sacrificially serve us that we might have life, that we might know you, that we might stand in this place today with minds opened fully and completely, with eyes, with crystal clear vision. God, so clear that we see clearly when we're not doing what you've called us to do. God, with hearts, with your Holy Spirit indwelling in such a way that we know precisely, God, convicted when we've stepped apart from you, God, encouraged when we're walking in your path. Father, thank you for the indwelling Holy Holy Spirit that, that guarantees our salvation. God, as we partake of the, of the bread, the wafer that represents your body today, Father, may we be encouraged by your Holy Spirit and the remembrance of so great a love as you demonstrated that we would be ones demonstrating that great love as well, that the world might know there is a God and there is a Savior. Father, may you be worshipped and may you be honored in our partaking of these elements. And I pray in Jesus' name.